Welcome to a special crossover edition of Great Ideas and Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And today, Christian nationalism. The topic has been much in the news in recent weeks, ever since controversial Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said in an interview that the Republican Party needs to be the party of nationalism. And since she's a Christian, Republicans should be Christian nationalists. But what does being a Christian nationalist actually mean? Is it an extreme religious identity as practiced by Viktor Orban in Hungary, or simply an expression of patriotic fervor combined with religious identity that fits into longstanding American traditions of the combination of our politics and our religious faith? Our guest today says that the idea of Christian nationalism is fundamentally flawed and at odds with the core notions that define America. Dr. Paul Miller is a political theorist and a political scientist. He's a professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. And he is a distinguished author who has just released his most recent book, The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? Uh, Paul, Dr. Miller, we go back a long ways. Welcome to Great Ideas and Beyond Politics. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for having me on the show. And it's good to see you again. It's great to see you again. So full disclosure to our listeners and our video viewers, uh, Paul and I shared a graduate program. We we go back 20 years um, and uh, it's it's really delightful to have you back on the show. And look, nowadays it's very hard for people to absorb political information, actually news information of any kind without knowing where people are coming from. So I just want to, I just want to let our, our listeners and viewers know that you're not coming at this from kind of a, a leftist political criticism standpoint. For one thing, you are, I mean, you are yourself a patriot. I've known this about you for a long time. You've served our country in the military in Afghanistan um, in a tour of duty. Um, so you are, you know, you are yourself patriotic. You're you're also yourself a Republican. You're also yourself a Christian. So you bring to this topic. I think a um, a perspective that's very steeped in your own sense of identity, and I think that brings a lot of credibility to any critique that you might offer of Christian nationalism. Did I get all that right? Yeah, you know, I remember back when we were in grad school together, we had a very small group, uh, the Republican Club, and I think I was one of the six or seven members of that club uh, in our program of a few hundred people. Uh, so I grew up on the right, politically and theologically conservative. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I'm a patriot. Served in the military. Uh, met and married my wife at a Southern Baptist church in Washington D.C. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I, ha I happily characterized myself as a Republican until uh, 2016, when I think it's fair to say that Trump sort of threw people like me out of the party. Uh, so I'm happily, contentedly independent now. Um, though I'd still characterize myself as right of center politically. Uh, so that's kind of where, and I share all this in chapter one of the book. I recognize that biography is part of the story here, but the rest of the book is not about me. It's about my understanding of American history, American nationalism, the American political right, which in 2016, I realized I didn't understand anymore. I grew up in on the right, card-carrying member, but I just kind of looked around and thought, I don't get this anymore. I'm not going in this direction, but it seems like everyone else is. And so there's got to be something more here that I'm not getting. And that uh, that kind of embarked, that started this journey that resulted in the book, 
this year um, uh, about American nationalism. Well, you know, I, I agree with you that biography is part of the story. And in a way, I think going back to where you and I met is sort of part of the story because there was an earlier time. I know it's easy to look back with rose-colored glasses on an earlier, simpler time. You know, it's 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 usually not fully true. But, you know, look, you and I come out of a political vintage and a political practice that where there really was a, a sort of a deeper respect for where each other was coming from, we could see it. We could understand it. As a matter of fact, I myself, I always held myself personally responsible in some way for Al Gore's loss in the 2000 election, because on election night at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, we had the Democrats Club, which was a lot larger than the Republicans Club. And we had the Republicans Club and we both booked rooms right next to each other yep. for our election watch party. I remember and it. After Florida was announced for Al Gore, my co-chair of the Democrats group and I went out to buy, I'm not making this up, champagne and cigars from a local store. We got back. The room was real quiet because they had just <laughs> taken it back. So what did we do at that moment? We walked next door to the room that you guys were in and we handed them over because that's the kind of America we used to have. I'm not saying there weren't fights. I'm not saying there weren't right. disagreements, but it was palpably different. And I, I'm like you, I don't recognize this version of where the Republican Party and so-called conservatism has gone. It's not what, what I recognize. So maybe that's a place to start here as we, as we kind of dive into the, the course of your book and your examination of Christian nationalism. First of all, I mean, I would be right to say that there was a long intertwining in American political history of people's political identity and their religious identity. Having a, a strong affirmation of being a Christian used to be kind of part and parcel of being a candidate for office in a way that I think people generally accepted. Is that right? Yeah. The intertwining of religious and political identity is... Um as old as America itself. It's older than America itself. It's always been a part of the uh, the political projects in North America ever since European settlement started. So I'm not saying there's anything particularly new here. I do think there's been an upsurge and a more pronounced um, explicit embrace of it than we've seen in several decades. And there is something different about today's version of it. <clears throat> it's a bit more, I think, defensive and reactionary. 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, you didn't have to argue very strong, very strongly that, say, this was a Christian nation, because most people wouldn't have even thought to disagree with that. And so the forms of Christian nationalism, if you want to call it that back then, were, I, I still would disagree with them, but they might have been a bit more benign simply because it wasn't as belligerent. Today, I do feel that because it's defensive, because it's reactionary, it is also a bit more belligerent. And I think I see more red flags there, more ways in which this could go wrong, <clears throat> more ways in which it could turn more explicitly uh, oppressive or illiberal or even violent, as we've seen some upsurge in political violence over the past few years. Well, I've told the story on this show before, but I, I don't mind dipping into it again, that the version of this that, that I always appreciated and enjoyed the most happened to me in college where a good friend of mine who was an evangelical Christian invited me to Bible study. And I, I kind of quipped to him, well, 
you know, because I'm Jewish, I'm like, how do you feel about the Old Testament? And he looked me in the eye and he said, oh, Matt, I, I think it's crucial. Well, then I felt like a giant jerk, right? And the, <laughs> it goes to your point, because I'm making light of something that's very, very important to him. And he's he's kind of earnestly inviting me to take part in something that's very meaningful to him. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm a jerk. But it goes to your point that there was at least a strain within that kind of expression of Christianity that was non-exclusionary. Now, look, I'm not going to pretend, and I don't think you do either in your book, that Christianity was always non-exclusive, that there wasn't oppression of people who were of other religions or a religious. It's more that this was not, as you say, a, a belligerent expression. And it seems like there's something that has changed in the political discourse that has made it sort of an aggressive, assertive, and very much exclusionary view of what it is to be a Christian and an American. Is, is that right? And, and when do you, where do you trace that, that change to? Let me draw a couple of distinctions here, like, like all scholars insist on doing, right? If you have a PhD, you specialize in, in splitting fine hairs. Uh, you know, I can talk to you about Christianity generally, you know, based on pure theology, and I can make a good case that there's nothing about Christianity that is exclusionary or oppressive. Hey, I'm a Christian, and you know, I, I think it's the true religion, and I don't think that there's anything about Jesus's ethic uh, that should lead us to oppress anybody in any sense. Now let's talk about the embodied practice of American Christianity over the last few centuries, and I can tell you that there's ways in which American Christians, generally white American Christians, have pretty consistently, mis I think, misinterpreted our faith, blurring our sacred and secular loyalties in ways that are at least unhelpful for church-state relations, unhelpful for me as a Christian, for my fellow co-religionists, for understanding the uh, ordinal priority of our loyalties. Then I can go one step further, not talking just about American Christianity, but the sort of the, the version of politically conservative um, white evangelical practice that we've seen over the past, I'd say, 40 to maybe 50 years. Really, we're talking about the Christian right. Um, and once again, I want to affirm a few good things here. Uh, I, I'm pro-life, and I rejoice at the Dobbs decision. I think that was the fruit of the uh, of the Christian right. Christian right does a good job of advocating for religious freedom. Right, I'm a fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I think there's some good principled work there. But as I researched and wrote this book, I looked anew at the Christian right, and I think it's fair to say that it is, at least in part, a nationalist movement. Uh, the Christian right allowed itself to become defined um, as much by its uh, Americanness as by its New Testament theology. And it became defined as much by its political conservatism as it was defined by its New Testament theology. Or not even conservatism, but political right-wingness. Okay, so there you have the label Christian put on a package of things that in some cases are only peripherally related to what's actually in the Bible, New Testament or Old Testament. And that's concerning to me as a Christian because I just I don't like things misrepresenting my faith. But then I also see what they've actually done. And I think that nationalism is at root intrinsically. It's got seeds of illiberalism and oppression in it. And I really don't like putting the label Christian on that. All right, that was the long windup to answering your question, which is kind of when did this get even worse? <clears throat> you know, I guess maybe I'd I'd, I'd, I'd relate the story again of uh, the the great transition in American life. I would date it to around the 1960s, 
when the old Anglo-Protestant consensus was no longer viable. Now, I'm using that phrase, Anglo-Protestant, that's Samuel Huntington's word for the, the, the traditional American identity, right? He argued in his book, Who Are We?, that Anglo-Protestantism was the founding, originating, defining culture of America, and that we should stay that way. That was his argument. Uh, and Anglo-Protestantism, kind of this British sort of vague Christianity, uh, defined what it meant to be an American for a long time. I'd say up to the 1960s. Post-1960s, there's a movement on the right to reassert traditional American identity. And what does that mean? It means reasserting an Anglo-Protestant or broadly Western Christian uh, version of American identity. And that reassertion can start to look and get very uh, get defensive, reactionary, and, and even worse. Um, and I can, I can say that while still affirming some of the things that I think were good that came out of that movement, I still see some quite troubling aspects of that broad reassertion. Does that make sense, Matt? It does make sense. And I'm, I'm hoping to, without making this discussion too complex, of course, you revel in complexity because, you know, that's, that's how you got your PhD. I, I do want to try to draw together a thread in what you just said hmm. with one that um, we helped to sort of unravel on this show a few months ago in a show that was widely circulated and, and followed. There was a, I did a Twitter thread about it that, um, you know, was, was widely followed. I had an interview with Dr. Randall Balmer of Dartmouth College, mm -hmm. who wrote yeah. a, a pretty comprehensive history of the rise of the religious evangelical right. And I'm mixing terms here because what you're talking about is religious terms and political terms. And he shows, and he was in the room and interviewed a lot of the key players involved here. He shows, I think very compellingly, that the motivation underlying the political rise of evangelical leaders was not necessarily the reaction to the Roe v. Wade decision, but rather a recognition that the abortion issue would be the most politically potent lever to pull on that would enable them to enact their other agenda items, which very much included the continuation of segregated religious schools and their tax treatment thereof. I commend that episode and that history to all of our listeners. You can go back in the Beyond Politics podcast feed and find it. You can also search for the thread on Twitter. Now, the contention that Dr. Balmer makes is, again, that this was, it's not that religious leaders at the time were not, in some cases, pro-life. Many of them were. But he does show that there was far from a religious consensus on that issue. And many religious leaders, including evangelical Protestant leaders, were what would be understood in today's terms as fairly pro-choice, recognizing exemptions and exceptions, and even a period during which abortion should be allowed by the government. And so his contention is that this issue was adopted because the real agenda was activating religious voters as part of the Republican conservative political base. It was that intertwining of religion <clears throat> and politics that made for a kind of toxic 
mixture. So I want to turn back to what you were just laying out about sort of the same time frame, this, this turn that happened in, in the 60s, the late 1960s. How do you relate to that story that Dr. Balmer tells? Does it come into your own weighing of this turn toward Christian nationalism? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I, I read some of uh, Randy's Randy Balmer's work in the research for mine. He was very kind enough to participate in a workshop for my book a couple of years back. Um, he's right that uh, evangelicals were late to the party on the pro-life cause. That was actually a Roman Catholic issue. And it took most of the 70s for the evangelicals to really decide, no, actually, we do believe in this. One thing I, I would... I would say that the religious right arose out of a wide array of concerns, and I sort of want to avoid passing judgment on which one was the, quote, real uh, concern or which one was the one that people were most sincere about. I think it's true that there was a lot of different things, and I'm going to just accept on face value that they were sincere about essentially all of them. Um, so abortion was one, but it was a bit later crime was actually a really big issue in the late 60s, early 70s, as this movement was was coalescing. We're only just now seeing a kind of spike in crime, but it was, a you know, crime rates in the 60s, it was all through the roof. And so the call for law and order, though racially tinged, was a very powerful rallying cry that brought some of these folks together. It's also a lot of concern about um, a, a belief that the sexual revolution had gone too far, uh, widespread pornography, widespread promiscuity, the prevalence of no-fault divorce laws, that was in the mix. Then there's this issue about segregation and, and anti-segregation busing. Um, I, I, I want to acknowledge that the Christian right in its first decade or so was essentially a coalition or a compromise, putting together an older Christian political movement that dates back to the 1920s, but it had to be a compromise between ex-segregationists and, and anti-segregationists, right? There were people, there were white conservative Christians on both sides of that issue, probably more on the pro-segregation side back in the 1950s, early 1960s. By the 70s, I think they recognized that issue was, you know, that ship has sailed and the anti-segregationists anti had won. And so the new Christian political movement had to essentially move past it. I think Balmer and others have suggested that there was always a kind of a secret racism animating the movement. I think that might go just a bit too far. Uh, to state it baldly, is Christian nationalism racist? Is Christian nationalism racist? That's, I think, the best way of framing the question. It's a really complicated issue. I I'm happy to say at the very least that the movement has been often racially insensitive in not recognizing the realities of racism in American history nor the ways in which racism has had intergenerational consequences that still reverberate today. And the political right has often seemed unconcerned with redressing those intergenerational inherited inequalities. That's a form of racial insensitivity. I think some people call that racism. I prefer to use that word for harder realities. But that, I think, is definitely true of the political right. That is sort of the, the blunt version of the question. I'd say there are two that, that arise here. One is that Christian nationalism is fundamentally talking about creating a, an exclusionary Christian white Anglo state. The other, and, and that's sort of the extreme that we've seen in Hungary. The other is that, it's, as you alluded to a moment ago, 
it's inherently reactionary and perhaps violent. And, you know, so for example, we have Andrew Seidel writing in a special report for the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty and Freedom from Religion Foundation that on January 6th in the insurrection, crosses were everywhere on flags and flagpoles, on signs and clothes, around necks, erected above the crowd. And there, there has been a lot of reporting that January 6th was fueled by sort of a Christian nationalist vibe. So I guess the question back to you is, is Christian nationalism ultimately racist and ultimately violent? So let's let me answer that historically. I think it's absolutely true that American nationalism used to be overtly, unapologetically, triumphantly racist. If you go read the American nationalists of the 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries, it was all about uh, white people. It was about, about you know America as a Look, the KKK was essentially an American nationalist group, uh, and and their their overt racism was was very clear. That's I don't think we need to belabor that point, right? Um, what happens after the 1960s is that those in the political right really try to drop the language of race and adopt the language of culture. So, if you want to take their rhetoric at face value, it's fair to say that they are culturalist. They they discriminate on the basis of culture. And they want to revive an older templator model of American culture that is Anglo-Protestant, but they would say, if you want to give the best version of their argument, that anyone can assimilate to this culture. That's the genius of America, is right. that anyone can be us uh, as long as you agree to kind of share our values and live under our constitution and so forth. That's, again, the best version of their argument. I, I think you have to, it strains a bit of credulity to... Uh, accept it whole hog. Uh, to fast forward to January 6th, um, yes, we do see a display there of Christian nationalism. You mentioned the symbols, the crosses, the, the, the Christian flag and the Confederate flag, by the way. When the leaders of the in, uh, attack, um, I choose to call it an attack rather than a riot, when they reached the floor of the U.S. Senate, they actually paused to pray. And there's a video of this on YouTube you can look up. And somebody somebody shouts out, they say, uh, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name. And then the leader prays and he prays and he says, thank you, God, for allowing us to preserve the American way of life. This is our nation uh, and the American way of life will not go down. In Jesus name we pray. And it's a very clear invocation of Christian language in a prayer to, to sanctify what I would characterize as a terrorist attack on the US Congress. Now, some people have thought that January 6th was a harbinger of things to come, uh, that it was the, the, the leading edge of a wave of political terrorism from the right. So far that hasn't happened, uh, thankfully, but I remain convinced that the potential for it is there. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you're trying to ask me how widespread is this? Mm -hmm. and, and my answer is that uh, I don't fully know. I know that the belief structure is very widespread, which means the potential for greater illiberalism and violence is there in seed, but it does need more than just that to actually manifest in specific acts of violence. There needs to be a triggering event, perhaps like another election or something like that. But the belief structure is what my book is about. It's about this broad set of beliefs that acted as the permissions for people to act on it on January 6th. 
I'm certainly not saying that all people on the right or all Christian nationalists are going to engage in political violence, but the, uh, again, belief structure, the potential is there for more such things like that. It seems to me that in your book, you raise the specter of racism and exclusion based on, as you just put it, culture, that could include religion, as a major problem here. You raise the possibility of sort of the violent aspect of what we might term Christian nationalism. But and and while not excluding either of those two major problems, you identify sort of a core connecting thought, which is that Christian nationalism is fundamentally illiberal. What do you mean by that? Yeah. And thanks for that question, because I think that's essentially the first critique I try to make of Christian nationalism. And I think that the oppression and violence are simply manifestations. They're just sort of after effects of the fundamental illiberalism that uh, intrinsically underlies the movement, which is why I'm very concerned about. So when I say illiberal, I mean not classically liberal. I'm talking about 18th century classical liberalism. I'm talking about the philosophy of the American founders. I'm talking about John Locke, right? Uh, That's classical liberalism. In a sense, we all were we all were classical liberals in the sense that we believe in an open society, some kind of democracy and representative institutions and civil liberties and civil rights and the Bill of Rights, that kind of stuff. That's all classical liberalism. And I think that nationalism, and you're not going to like this, Matt, but I think progressivism too, at least on the the far left and the far right, are both increasingly illiberal. No, I'm with you, with you 100%. All right. There you go. Yeah. So, And and that's why I'm independent today. Uh, I'm not equating the two. I'm not saying that they're on a, on a par necessarily, but you are a hundred percent. I I agree with you that there is a version of progressivism. We're seeing it on campuses. We're seeing it yeah. in institutions, and we're seeing it in government that is fundamentally illiberal. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what my next book is about, by the way. <laughs> Looking forward uh, to it. Yeah. Um, so uh, the illiberalism of nationalism. You can see it because it holds up one particular cultural template and says, you have to be this to be truly American. And think for a moment about what that implies about anybody who is a cultural minority or dissident or who cannot, or just doesn't want to be your thing. They don't want to be Anglo-Protestant. You're treating them like a second-class citizen. You're saying you're not really one of us. We've all heard, you know, red state Americans say, we're the real Americans. Mm. What, What is that? Are you saying that everybody else is a fake American or not right. a real? Like that's right. it's like George that a, Allen and his Macaca moment, you know, like yeah. welcome to the real America. You know, what yeah. what are you saying there exactly? Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so so that kind of attitude, even more than public policy, that attitude is a kind of a I would call it a, a it's a chauvinism. It's a kind of a Christian chauvinism that says we're the first citizens of the public square. We deserve to define the American experiment. Uh, we built this country. You're welcome. <laughs> We're sharing it with you. Right. And that's that series of attitudes that is uncharitable. It's inhospitable. And again, contains the seeds of uh, uh, public policies that are I- intrinsically oppressive. Well, first of all, I-, I think you sum it up so well. You put this on the blurb on your book. It's just such a it's such a good sentence. I, I just want to read it. You know, you write Christians must relearn how to love our country without idolizing it. 
boy, there's something in there, right? In terms of seeking false idols and seek a healthier Christian political witness that respects our constitutional ideals and a biblical vision of justice. That's perfectly put. And I just, you know, just to go back to your point from a moment ago, again, I, I think neither of us is trying to equate or necessarily compare the progressive illiberalism that we've seen in recent years with this Christian nationalist, we'll call it a right-wing illiberalism. But it is fair to say for our more conservative listeners that there is truth in that. And this has been well-documented by writers from Connor Friedersdorf to Andrew Sullivan that, and you know, and all you need to do is read some of the examples and they are manifest from around the country of people being asked to accept the writings of the anti-racist writings of Abraham X. Kendi or, you know, or, or one of these similar authors that you have to follow that or else you are by definition, I guess, not part of the, the group or you're a racist or something. All you need to do is substitute the Christian Bible in that sentence and you, you end up with Christian nationalism. They are mirror images of one another. So Anyway, that's me editorializing with you for just a moment there. I so if we if we accept the idea that it's the the problem here is a fundamental illiberalism. It's it's a, a failure to accept the core of what makes America great in the first place. What's the consequence if we're seeing more and more politicians out of one of the major political parties? Folks like Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania and Lauren Boebert in Colorado and Marjorie Taylor Greene. But you're also seeing strains of this in many other politicians. I'm not just trying to cherry pick sort of the, the most extreme examples. If you're seeing more and more politicians adopt this framework as, yes, this is how I identify. This is this is how I'm going to practice my brand of politics. What's the impact? What's the consequence that we should all be worried about? Well, I mean, sooner or later, illiberalism is not just rhetoric, it becomes policy. Uh, and when Ill, when we have illiberal policy, democracy will only survive for so long. I think one of the saving graces of the Trump presidency was that he was just not a very effective president. So he was not able to actually pass the kind of policies maybe that he wanted to. He talked on the campaign trail six years ago about opening up the libel laws and making it easier to sue for libel. He didn't do that, thankfully, but that's an example of the kind of kind of blatantly illiberal thing that he championed. If you look at other countries that have had nationalism, right? We, uh, Hungary, Viktor Orban um, has been more pronounced and maybe even more effective uh, in his illiberalism. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I believe he actually successfully shut down a university or, or took control of the curriculum. I, I'm a bit fuzzy on the details here, but uh, he's been more effective at creating a social consensus around his version of Christian nationalism. They rewrote their constitution. They put it in the, in the country that it's a, it's a Christian country. Um, highly restrictive immigration policies to ensure that Hungary remains essentially mono-ethnic. Uh, you know, that, that's the kind of illiberalism that we could see if we had a more effectively competent nationalist government in America. I think it's probably too many veto points, too many checks. Our, our political system is too sclerotic to allow that to happen. Um, but th that's the kind of consequence that could come to pass. Look, well before that happens, we'll see. I think we'll see more January 6th. I honestly mm. do. I, I think that 
in order to get to that point where a nationalist government could actually pass the policies at once, you would first have to provoke such a constitutional crisis that you would end up uh, to enable you to override our constitutional barriers against that kind of illiberalism. I really, I really think that would be the route that they're thinking of. Although I wonder a little bit about, and I think the concern, now look, I mean, as longtime listeners know, and as you know well, I'm a member of the Democratic Party. I belong to no organized party. I'm a Democrat um, with some you know, misgivings about some of the excesses of my own party. I think what most Democrats and political observers who are really worried from a political standpoint about the rise of Christian nationalism in the U.S. are worried about is not as much the overt Viktor Orban Hungary model of we're going to uh, redefine marriage as once again only being between a man and a woman. We're going to amend the constitution to ban same-sex couples from adopting children. It's not the it's not so much the overt pieces, although look, you know, Democrats and people who are pro-choice do see a version of that in the Dobbs decision. It, it's not so much that it's it's the subtler adoption of similar political aims that are infused with the same sentiments drawn from Christian nationalism. So it's not exactly the Hungary model of immigration, but it's sort of the Donald Trump model of immigration and family separation and let's build the wall. It's not exactly the Hungary model of persecuting same-sex couples, but it's it's sort of the American Republican Party model, which, you know, is I, I think this is an issue that's yet to be resolved, although there's been substantial progress. I, what do you make of, I guess what I'm driving at is the reason that I put in the the ad at the top for who you are and where you're coming at this from is that you only Nixon could go to China and mm. only someone who is a passionate Christian and a Republican and a patriot with your kind of credentials can perhaps go to fellow Christians and Republicans and make the case for, hey, we need to turn away from this path because of our core liberalism in the traditional sense, because of our core belief in Christian values and American values. How do you make that case? How do you make that case to fellow Christians and to fellow Republicans when so many of the policy aims seem kind of mainstream from a from a political practice standpoint in the Republican Party today? So I try to address some of that in at the end of the book. Well, at the, in chapters two and 10, I really try to talk about <clears throat> what I think might be the right or a healthier Christian political engagement. <clears throat> Um, and it's maybe not in the level of detail that many readers have been looking for. Give me a couple of books and I'll get there. Uh, but I, I want to affirm first patriotism. I think that patriotism is probably the best bulwark against an unhealthy nationalism. I think it's good for us to love our country and be grateful for the good things about it. It's when you hear a lot of anti-Americanism that it causes people to retrench and, and get defensive. And in that defensiveness, they want to reassert what makes America great again. And it can become, again, as we've said, reactionary. Um, so I think, I think actually cultivating a generous, open, healthy patriotism, reminding people the good things about this country, 
I think it's a good first step. I think it is important in and with, and maybe the next step is to also recognize the ways our country needs to get better. Patriotism is not a blind loyalty and it's not a uncritical embrace. And I think maybe this is something that the right needs to hear a little bit more of, because if you're only telling a story of triumph, that really is a road to idolatry as if our country is perfect. We all know about the sins of the past. And I think there is room for a kind of a national uh, 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 expression of contrition, lament, repentance, um, and, uh, and maybe talking about ways to uh, symbolically come to grips with the past. I think that'd be a healthy thing for our country and, and for the right to embrace that. What I'm saying, Matt, is that uh, what it means to be an American is to know our story. Yes, it means to appreciate the American creed, but it means to understand the story of the creed. Because we're not just defined by the creed, we've never lived up to it. But we are defined by the story of us coming ever closer to the creed. That's the story of American history. And if you don't know that story, you are missing out on what it, on something important to what it means to be an American. You need to know the story, the triumphs and the failings. So if you don't know the failings, then what are we triumphing over? So understand the failings uh, and understand that you have a responsibility to step into this story and take it forward to the next chapter. That means recognizing the failings that are still there today, not just beating your chest and singing, I'm proud to be an American, but saying, look, here's how we can make our country better today. Let's overcome this particular evil right now. That's a general statement. But you know, if you want to ask me specifics about this or that policy, I'm happy to do more. But that's maybe my first answer is love our country, see how we can do better. I love that. I love that. And I'm going to excerpt it. And, you know, I, I I want people to hear it. I want people to hear it because there's such a deep irony embedded in the resistance on the cultural and political and religious right to, you know, this has come up a lot recently with teaching the history of segregation and slavery in schools, this idea that, you know, it's it's the criticism of America. And I think you've just eloquently laid out, is there anything more fundamentally Christian than understanding the notion of repentance, of falling and rising again? I mean, mm. I look, do, don't take it from me. I'm Jewish, but it, to, I, I can't imagine something more quintessentially Christian in the best possible sense. And that, in my mind, would be a healthy merger of Christian ideology and American ideology is that recognition of that really is the American story. What have we overcome? What failings? What what shortcomings have we overcome? Let me, as we begin to wind down, I, I want to I hit you with kind of a, a challenging point, because all of this is happening, this rise of Christian nationalism and that open expression of that as a political identity is happening against a backdrop of two things. You know, as you said, this is kind of an inherently reactionary political stance. One is immigration and the rise of, of racial and ethnic minorities and kind of a changing face of America and Americans. The other is a decline in American Christianity and identification as a Christian. According to the Pew Research Center, over the last 10 years or so, the number of self-identified Christians in America has 
declined by 12 percentage points. The number of people who just indicate no religion has grown by 10 points. We are, and other surveys show similar drops. Now, Christians are still the dominant cultural group in America, but it's down to less than two thirds of us. It's, it's certainly not as dominant as it once was. Are we able, I assume that you ascribe some of this reaction to some of that drop. And I guess the question is, in the context of that drop, can we pivot now to a healthier version of that merger between Christian ideology and American patriotism? Well, I hope so. And, and the answer is yes, that part of the movements we're seeing is a reaction to demographic change. Uh, white Christians are a smaller portion of, Amer of the American population than ever before in 400 years. Um, and it is pretty normal in uh, all around the world as uh, demographics change, majority groups are losing their grip on power, that they get a little antsy about that. It's very normal. But I'm concerned that what is happening is it's turning white evangelicals into uh, their own ethno-religious group. And American nationalism is essentially the identity politics of white evangelicals. Mm. That, I think, would be the wrong, the unfortunate conclusion to this demographic change. I think it'd be much healthier if it helped us understand the difference between our social power and our principled ideals. I, I want to continue to pursue Christian ideals in the public square. Justice, equal justice for all. That's a Christian ideal. By the way, it's one that everybody can agree on. Right? Um, and that can, that is separable from the social and political predominance of Christian institutions in American life. Christianity can lose some influence and still gain victory for its ideals if we recast our political activism the right way. Well, I say this completely unironically, but amen to that. I think it's a wonderful expression of what the the synthesis of patriotism and Christianity should be. That's that's what it should be. And I hope that your book will help move us toward that kind of ideal. So the book is The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism. It is available on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And Dr. Miller, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. 